I want you to hit me as hard as you can. I have the power of Grayskull! If you grew up in the 80s, then no doubt He-Man and the Masters of the Universe were a big staple of your childhood. And you know what else probably was too? Canon Films, with their slew of Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson flicks and ninja movies, not to mention King Solomon's Mines, with the immortal Richard Chamberlain as Alan Quartermain, reinvented as the bargain basement Indiana Jones, and Sly Stallone in the arm wrestling extravaganza Over the Top. Yes, the Canon Films was no doubt another childhood staple. And folks, in 1987, something amazing happened. These two worlds collided in a big way, with a movie that, despite a critical mauling and a tepid box office, became a staple of children's birthday parties in the year of our Lord, 1988. The film was Masters of the Universe, the star was Dolph Lundgren, and we're here to tell you all about what the f**k happened to... Masters of the Universe! Now before we get into the movie version of Masters of the Universe, we first need to examine how He-Man himself came into being. For years, the urban legend was that Mattel had made toys of Conan the Barbarian, but once they saw how violent the R-rated sword and sorcery fantasy was, they dumped the original heads and made new characters. Not so, and the whole history of the toys, which were promoted by a wildly popular cartoon series by Funimation, was documented on Netflix's The Toys That Made Us. Suffice to say, He-Man was the shit in the mid-80s, and certainly it seemed like a promising franchise. Oddly, when the time came to make the film, most of the backstory set up by the series was nixed, and only a few elements made it into the film, specifically He-Man himself, although the Prince Adam aspect was left out. Thankfully, they at least remembered to include Skeletor. Somewhere along the line, the decision was also made to set most of the film on Earth. Why, you ask? Enter Canon Films. At the time, producers Menahem Golan and Yoren Globus were on a roll. With their B-action flicks doing so well, they were able to court respectability by producing artier fare, such as John Cassavetti's Love Streams, Godard's King Lear, Barfly, 52 Pickup, and perhaps their greatest film of all, Runaway Train. But alas, these movies made no money, and to jump to the next level, Golan and Globus decided to spend, spend, spend. Enter Sylvester Stallone, who got paid $12 million to star in Over the Top, which in turn only grossed $16 million. Suddenly the studio, which had overspent lavishly on their slate of films, was in a real bind. The biggest casualty was arguably Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, which saw its budget slashed in half. But Masters of the Universe, which they touted as the Star Wars of the 80s, was similarly affected. To direct, they hired Gary Goddard, a talented writer-producer who, it must be said, has emerged as a truly troubling figure in recent years, but more on that later. While fans have complained about the film's lack of faithfulness to the material, in recent years Goddard's Jack Kirby influence, particularly by the New Gods storyline, has given the film some notoriety and cult status among fans. Goddard later said his goal was to make the film look as far from your typical canon film as possible. But with a limited $17 million budget, a sprawling sci-fi fantasy was out of the question. Thus, the decision to set the film on Earth. The one area they didn't skimp was the set for Skeletor's throne room, and given how impressive it was, the decision was made to set a full third of the film in this room. Indeed, people were impressed, with Goddard telling Entertainment Weekly that Michael Jackson was shooting the video for Smooth Criminal on the soundstage next door, and could often be found sneaking a peek at the throne room, which he thought looked amazing. To play He-Man, Dolph Lundgren, coming off his star-making turn in Rocky IV as Ivan Drago, was hired. 
Now here's where we get a little controversial. In the years since, Goddard has panned Lundgren's performance, saying the plan was always to dub him with another actor. But that theory doesn't really hold water. For one thing, people have always said Lundgren knew very little English at the time, but that's not true. He dated Grace Jones for years before that and earned a Fulbright scholarship to MIT. He knew English. It's also doubtful that Cannon would have hired an up-and-coming star like Lundgren with the notion of looping his dialogue, as that's always been the kiss of death for actors. Just ask Sam Jones from Flash Gordon, or Clinton Spilsbury from The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Heck, ask Andy McDowell, who was dubbed by Glenn Close in Greystoke The Legend of Tarzan. It took her career years to recover. Lundgren, while stiff, spoke English well enough, and it's unlikely anyone at Cannon ever seriously planned to loop him. His contract allowed him three tries to nail the dialogue, and whatever, he's fine. Dubbing probably would not have improved his performance. One of the biggest issues of contention with Mattel was over He-Man's costume, which they wanted to resemble the cartoon, breastplate and all. In the end, a compromise was reached, although the leather bondage aspect of the suit hasn't aged all that well. Arnold Schwarzenegger wearing slacks and no shirt in Conan the Barbarian looks downright reserved by comparison. For Skeletor, Cannon was able to hire Frank Langella, and by all accounts he had a whale of a time playing the character despite the mask. Langella said he took on the role because his young son was a massive He-Man fan and used to run around the house screaming, I have the power of Greyskull. Langella has never spoken ill about the film and still says it was one of his favorite roles, and you can tell, his performance is delicious. The cast was rounded out by Chelsea Field as Tila, a warrior woman comrade of He-Man's, while John Cipher played Man-at-Arms, both characters that originally showed up in the cartoon. Also a carryover from the cartoon was the henchwoman, Evil Lynn, played by genre favorite Meg Foster, who has the most unique eyes in Hollywood, and whose breastplate weighed 45 pounds, although she said that the discomfort aided her performance. As the Earthbound allies of He-Man, there was Robert Duncan McNeil, who'd later star in Star Trek Voyager's Tom Paris, as the love interest Kevin, a rock musician who thinks the cosmic key that can stop Skeletor is a Japanese synthesizer. And there was a pre-famed Courtney Cox as Julie, a lovable high school student mourning her dead parents, who gets swept up into the adventure. Back then, she was best known for dancing with the boss in the Dancing in the Dark music video, and of course would go on to star as Monica on a little show you may have heard of called Friends. Fun fact, Christina Pickles, who plays Sorceress, the kindly witch imprisoned by Skeletor, would later recur as Monica's mom on the very same show. Elliot Gould, who played Monica's father, also had history with canon films. And of course, who could forget Billy Barty as Gwildor? An original creation for the film, he was modeled on Yoda, and the prosthetics that transform Barty into this creature are, well, not great. He gives the film some unintentionally funny moments with the good guy's constant exasperated cries of Gwildor being much mocked on the popular podcast How Did This Get Made? The movie itself is likable cheese, with it centering around He-Man and his pals escaping Skeletor to Earth, where they have to recover the cosmic key to get home and stop Skeletor before he harnesses the power of the universe. Well, too bad for them, they fail pretty miserably. But, happily, the only thing the power of the universe does is give Skeletor a cute gold outfit and a chance for Langella to chew on some scenery with a monologue. In between, there are lots of laser battles, with He-Man killing lots of robotic soldiers thanks to a clause in the contract with Mattel, which said he could not take a life. There are some sword battles, but all Lundgren does is hold it clumsily, although his six-pack and bod are out of control, as is his hair metal 80s power mullet, which is a sight to behold. Courtney Cox is quite charming while Lundgren, God love him, may be stiff but is still kind of awesome in a very Dolph Lundgren way. He's since referred to it as his worst moment as an actor. But Dolph? 
I mean, I would have thought Johnny Mnemonic. Jesus time. While utterly silly, the film does have a lot of charm, and it's deliciously 80s cheese, to the point that James Tolkien, who played the asshole authority figure in seemingly every 80s action movie, is on board as a cop giving He-Man and his crew a hard time. The score by Bill Conti is pretty solid too, even if it's a total John Williams ripoff. The movie was never really finished, with the cash-strapped cannon pulling the financing before they had time to shoot the climax, meaning the final battle between He-Man and Skeletor is anything but epic. As Goddard put it in the documentary Toy Masters, they were stopped in the middle of a shot by a canon executive, who told them they were done. Goddard was stuck without an ending, but was able to get Lundgren, Skeletor, and the DP together for a hastily improvised finish, where the clash of their swords sucks the power out of the room, hiding the fact that the Castle Greyskull set was gone. The resulting fight was somewhat less than epic, but it worked to some extent. Even if the film was short of the epic that Mattel and Cannon were hoping for, the movie was aggressively promoted, with Mattel unleashing a whole new toy line based on the film. They even did a competition where the winner could get a bit part in the film. And sure enough, at one point, there's a very odd shot of Skeletor passing a pig-boy-esque creature. That's little Richard Sponder, a third grader who got to visit the set, pose with his heroes, and have a tiny part in the film. Needless to say, everyone had high hopes for a sequel, which is why Skeletor, who you think has died, pops up in an after-credits scene to warn that he'll be back. All in all, the film came together relatively well, although some material was eliminated from the final cut, with Den of Geek revealing that at one point there was supposed to be a revelation that Eternia was colonized by astronauts from Earth's future, a twist that made it into the Marvel Comics adaptation of the film. Financially, the film was a bust, getting trounced by Stakeout in the living daylights at the box office. It didn't help that by 1987, the toy line had cooled off significantly, thanks to too many He-Man clones and the fact that kids had moved on to G.I. Joe and Transformers. It only grossed $17 million, and wasn't nearly enough to save Canon from financial freefall. Although the finished product certainly held up a lot better than the other 1987 epic, Superman IV The Quest for Peace. It must have done okay on video and cable, and certainly it was a major VHS favorite of kids in this era. It did well enough that Cannon came very close to doing a sequel, with schlock director Albert Pune signing on to direct a very low-budget follow-up that would have starred surfer Laird Hamilton as He-Man, who once again is stranded on Earth and goes undercover as a football player. It sounds pretty awful, and wisely Cannon pulled the plug, although the sets and costumes wound up being repurposed for another Cannon Pune film, Cyborg, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. In fact, during its cable run, the TV listings often listed it as Masters of the Universe 2 Cyborg, Weird, huh? In the years since, the fortunes of all those associated with Masters of the Universe have varied. For Golan Globus, the movie was the last hurrah, with Menahem Golan being forced out of the company in 1989, taking his much-hyped Marvel license with it, which meant the only Marvel films we got for the next decade were low-budget programmers like his Captain America or the unreleased Fantastic Four. Yoram Globus continued with canon, but the company didn't last. Gary Goddard never directed another film, but became wildly successful as a theme park ride developer, directing T2 3D and Jurassic Park The Ride. However, his career took a dark turn when numerous sexual assault allegations against him surfaced a few years ago, with ER star Anthony Edwards posting a damning essay on media detailing the years of abuse he allegedly suffered at Goddard's hands, beginning when he was 12 years old. Other men have come forward with other allegations, although for the record, Goddard has denied all. In happier news, the stars of Masters of the Universe fared well, with McNeil finding success on Star Trek Voyager, while Courtney Cox has become a massive star thanks to, you know, that show you might have heard of. 
Lundgren's career has had its ups and downs, with his initial wave of stardom petering out after a few flops which later became cult classics, including the comic book adaptation The Punisher, Showdown in Little Tokyo, Dark Angel aka I Come in Peace, and Red Scorpion. His most successful role for a while was as the antagonist in Universal Soldier, but recently he's had a surprising and welcome resurgence, which began with the three Expendables movies, and went into high gear following his acclaimed turn as Drago in Creed II with him going on to have a juicy role in Aquaman. He's currently working on a spy show with Sylvester Stallone called The International, and has a voice role in Minions, The Rise of Gru. As for Masters of the Universe, Sony and Netflix are developing a feature set to star teen heartthrob Noah Centino as He-Man. But if it happens, they gotta give old Dolph a call, cause you know what, the guy is still jacked. As for the movie itself, while the accusations against Goddard may have tainted it, Masters of the Universe remains an affable slice of 80s nostalgia.